Welcome to Everything with Black Podcast. Right now we're in the middle of this tour with Paul Bear and Vatnet Viscar, but I still wanted to get some of these episodes out to you, so I'm going to be brief with this introduction. Um, first, first and foremost, brought to you by Savage Gold Coffee, which is my brand new coffee company. So if you want to order a pound of coffee, go to savagegoldcoffee.com. You can order one pound or you can join the Savage Gold Coffee Alliance and get coffee shipped directly to you on a monthly basis. Running down the list, we got Datsusara. And if you're a listener of this podcast, you know that I'm a huge fan of all the Datsusara products. I have a bag that I take with me on the road, take to training. Um, I use the Datsusara fanny pack for uh, you know tour managing and all that kind of stuff. Then we have uh, Nature Box, which is relatively new. And if you're interested in uh, sort of specialized dietary requirements, snacks, if you want vegan snacks, um, you know, gluten-free, low sugar, that kind of thing, you just go to naturebox.com through the portal, of course, and um, you can tell them what you want. They send you something every month. And uh, last but not least, onit.com. You know, if you're into uh, supplements, high-quality foods, things of that nature, kettlebells, then onit.com is a place for you. You can reach all of these locations uh, through the everythingwentblackmedia.com website, and uh, I have a convenient portal. Click through, and uh, there you go. For this episode, I had the pleasure of meeting Eric Haycraft at his Real Fighters gym located in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, Eric is a storied Muay Thai fighter, um, sort of in that Dutch style, which we'll get into in the podcast, and uh, also a coach, uh, sort of a, this renegade out there in the middle of uh, Kentucky, where there isn't really that much of a scene for kickboxing. So his uh, his fighters are always on the road, which is something I can relate to. Fighters Gym with Eric Haycraft. So, um, Eric, uh, you know, we've been hanging out for a little bit this morning here in Louisville. It's a beautiful day. Uh, one of the things I wanted to get into before we get into the whole story of, uh, you know, your, your illustrious career with Glory and the gym and everything is, how did you get involved in martial arts? Uh, that's I always ask that question so whenever funny. I talk to people that train and or, or train other people, you know. Yeah, it's really, it's really a funny story, and it's little embarrassing actually <laughs> I'm 41 years old now so when I was a sophomore in high school I was um, the only other sport I ever really played was basketball okay. I was in middle school and uh, I was really bad at sports in the beginning and I stuck it out and stuck it out I came from a family of athletes and uh, I wanted to make my dad proud so I kept playing basketball and then I had like a, a point where I got to an okay level not great but no, okay I was playing at least right and, uh, and then after the eighth grade, uh, I tried out for the freshman team at our high school, and I went to one of the bigger high schools, powerhouse sports high schools in town, and they patted me on the head and said, oh, you're cute. I probably weighed a buck 20, and I was short, and I couldn't jump, and I, you know, I, had a, I could shoot from the outside and dribble a little bit, but there was no chance in hell I was going to play high school basketball, and this is a massive state for basketball. And uh, so then I moved on to back to my other nerdy hobbies, and uh, gave up on sports. Uh, so maybe midway through my sophomore year, a friend of mine decided that we should lift weights so we weren't so skinny anymore. Like most high, you know, high school kids do, want to get involved in some weight training, boys at least. Yeah, definitely. His dad had some weights in his garage, and we were in a in their garage. They had a, an extra refrigerator, and on top of it, they had an old television. And they had cable hooked up to it, so TV was always on in the garage when we'd lift weights. So one day we're lifting weights and blood sports on TV. Right on, man. And, Kumite. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, honestly, I looked at martial arts as I was a giant nerd, and I thought it was for even nerdier people than me, martial arts. And because the only contact I had would be for, like families that do Taekwondo in our neighborhood. Right. We lived in a upper middle class neighborhood, so they were not fighters by any means, but nerdy people doing Taekwondo. So we kind of laughed about it, but we were like, that dude's yoked, man. He's, he's got muscles, you know? Van Damme. Let's, yes. Yeah, okay. Let's lift weights and yeah. look like him. And then he, there's the famous scene where he's doing the splits. There's, like, he's always doing the splits. It's every other scene he's doing the splits. 
And then we laughed and we're like, that's crazy. And then we're like, he, my friend Mike's like, do you think you could do that? And I was like, I don't think I could do that. And he's like, I bet I can do it. And I was like, I bet you can do it. <laughs> so then somehow that rolled into a competition to see who could do the splits. Okay. And it was strictly about stretching. To go along with our weight training had nothing to do with martial arts. Neither one of us had, I, I, at least on my end, I had no inclination to do martial arts. The movie didn't even inspire me to do martial arts, you know? So it's really funny because everybody always uses blood sport as their yeah. entry point. So we started, I would stretch every night in my basement. And literally in about six weeks, I could do the splits. And a full split. A full split. And in like in seven weeks, I could do it on the chairs. Like in, you see wow. a lot of people do okay. So when, I, when we had our, you know, show what you could do day to each other, I did it. And not only did I do it on the chairs, and he was like, dude, you should do karate. And I was like, yeah, I should totally do karate. And so I started looking around for martial arts stuff in my area. And this was really no internet yet so it was did you go to the phone book and talk to people and all so that so as I looked stuff. in the phone book there was all these big ads for big places and then there was a little bitty one just words and it was like a block and a half from my house in a fire station oh great so I called them and it was a husband and wife that taught Kung Fu and it didn't I didn't know the difference of any of it it was martial arts it was close it was cheap so I started there with a couple friends and uh, I did Kung Fu for maybe two or three years there and was just absorbed in it. You know, it was, I've got a very obsessive personality, so it became from not knowing how to say the word Shaolin to uh, I had every book that was available yep. on the market, every video, uh, every Bruce Lee book and video there was. And uh, fast forwarding, the only thing I really, really enjoyed over the years of training Kung Fu was the sparring aspect of sure. it. I didn't like the forms. I definitely didn't like the weapons. So... Uh, somewhere along the line, I started, as I was collecting all this Bruce Lee stuff, I would see all these references to full contact fighting and uh, boxing, and, yeah. and, and, and it interested me. So he, just across the bridge in Indiana, there's a American kickboxing school. still there to this day. They do a lot less activity now. But uh, I started going over there to do American kickboxing a couple times a week while I was doing Kung Fu. And the very first day I went in there, I thought I was really badass. I was, I ruled, you know, like the sparring was my thing, and, but we didn't really hit each other, so. Yeah, see, let's just insert something real, yeah. real quick, like American kickboxing versus what most people, maybe, you know, some of the younger kids listen to this, they see like, you know, MMA and like uh, Muay Thai and whatnot. So there is a difference between American kickboxing. They're absolutely, like yeah. if you go back into the 70s, 80s, and even the very early 90s, there was a, a, a separate form of kickboxing, and it's there, there are still some tiny pockets around the world. But the rules were you couldn't kick below the waist. All the kicks had to be above the waist. They wore long pants. Right. They wore uh, the foam dip karate boots on their feet and shin guards. And there was a silly rule just to keep boxers out that said you had to make eight kicks around. And this was called American kickboxing. They called it full contact karate in some places. It became known as just uh, full contact. So there were three big divisions back in the day. There was the Muay Thai, there was there was kickboxing, and then there was full contact. And kickboxing was more like K1, yeah, glory type European. stuff, Muay Thai, yeah. and then there was the American kickboxing. So I went there, and uh, yeah, I mean, I started doing that. I got my, my ass handed to me. I had no idea what I was doing. Along the lines, I started reaching out for advice from people, came across... Uh, Randomly enough, like those early days, the only kickboxing videos I could find, there used to be a video store called Suncoast Videos. It was in all the malls. So in Suncoast Videos, I found this Dennis Alexio fight tape. Yeah. So I buy it, I watch it, and I'm hooked instantly because not only is this guy a badass in the video, but he's also the dude that was in the kickboxing movie with Van Damme in the wheelchair. So there's this connection to these movies too and it was like yeah. oh that becomes so now, now we're on another Van Damme yeah. we had there's a lot of Van Damme yep. got, now, he's, now we got kickboxing he's ingrained in a lot of different people's yeah. <laughs> access to uh, so I had tracked down um, you know uh, who the manager of Dennis Alexio was to ask advice it was Bob Wall from Enter the Dragon I don't know if that means anything to you no, I, I know who Bob Wall is Bob, maybe yeah. Yeah. Bob Wall was uh doing real estate and fighter management on the West Coast. <laughs> so Bob Wall wrote me back directly and gave me all this advice and said, like, you know, like, this is what you need to look for, blah, blah, blah. And then in that same, when I was doing this mass mailing trying to get advice, I had also reached out to the coach of uh, Kathy Long, who was a, one of the first female kickboxers in the country. And her coach, a guy named Eric Nolan. And Eric Nolan was kind enough to write back 
call me and he gave me some advice and he said listen stop going to the above the waist stuff yeah find somewhere that's kicking to the legs at the very least because that's the future of the sport and if you can't find that just box because the level of boxing far exceeds anything you're going to find in kickboxing right now at this stage and uh, yeah, I said okay I'll see what I can do you know so it was it was a tough road but push 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 I I started finding friends from different states that had some limited experience. We started traveling the country a little bit. Started a small training group here. I had my first amateur fight in Niagara Falls against uh, somebody from Sioux Charge Gym. I had no idea what I was doing. Got my ass kicked for three rounds. And uh, after that, I was in like 92 or 93. And I called Bob Wall and said, hey, I've got a video of this guy named Roman Deckers. And... I'm, in, I'm intrigued, you know. Do you know how I can get in touch with those guys? And he said, I know their manager. So he sent me a, a fax with the manager's information on it. It was a guy named Clovis Dupretz, and he lived in uh, France at the time. Okay. So I faxed. I went to Kinko's. I didn't have a fax machine, and I paid nine ninety nine for an international fax. <laughs> to I'll never forget this, ever, as long as I live, to Clovis Dupretz. And Clovis Dupretz wrote me back and said, hey, I'm actually Rob Kamen's manager, but I know those guys really well. And I've already forwarded all your facts over to them. And then Kinko's calls me and says, you have another fax up here. So I go back, and it's from Cor Hemmers. Oh, wow. And Cor Hemmers was like, basically, what do you want? What can I do for you? you know, and so I write him this long letter saying, I'm, I got one fight. I lost. I don't know anything. And I'm fascinated by this, these videos of this guy. What if I came to Holland and trained? Is that even possible? And he was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's possible. And I said, what would it cost? He goes, I don't know. We never had anybody from the USA come over and do that exactly like what you're asking to do. So just get over here and we'll figure it out. So I ran the phone, called Delta Airlines, bought a ticket. Now back then, this this really was like when like you really could not find a place to train Muay Thai in the United States. It was really at all. tough. It, was like it existed. Really, it existed. But it, it was so obscure. It was almost all West Coast yeah. oriented. And most of the things were on the West Coast. There was already like a scene there, and it was kind of it was. It was growing out of that Benny Urquidez, WK, Karate, uh, you know, some of the ties were starting to move to that, you know, L.A. area. So it was starting out there a little bit. It was growing in that area. Yeah, but certainly not here in the Midwest no, or any, there's you still, know, or East Coast. Or there's still nothing of any quality. There's nothing of any quality. So uh, that was it. I took off for Holland, and I originally was going to just stay for a couple weeks and extending that stay. And, uh, I mean, it was the most eye-opening thing ever, you know, because what what occurred to me right away, I was like 19 at the time, and what occurred to me was I went over there with these dreams that I'm going to be a world champion someday. And then after I got there, I'm training in a room of, you know, the first couple sessions I did with all the A-class guys, the top-level guys, and I was just getting smashed. I had no sure. business in that room. But he, he said, listen, he wanted me to come to that conclusion. He didn't want to insult me and say, this isn't the group for you. He knew. Yeah, yeah. But he wanted me to come to that conclusion. So after that, I told him, I said, I can't, I'm not going to make it if I keep doing this. And he said, okay, come to the B-class level, but still come to this A-class level and work on the side. And I was like, okay, deal. So, uh, you know, I, I came, I went over there thinking I'm going to be a world champion, but here's where I had the epiphany. And I never said it, I don't think I ever said it out loud at that time, but in the room of the A-class fighters, you had, man, at that time there were seven world champions. You know, you got a guy like Ramon who had then 190 fights. Yeah. You had a guy right behind him, Luke Verheyen, who had 80 or 90 fights internationally. And then they went down the list, Michael Lufat, Noel Vandenweibel, all these you know, guys that nobody even knows now, they were really top, top of their game at that point. And... So you had like seven big world champions. Then you had another dozen European champions. And then there was 10 Dutch national champions. These are just the A-class fighters. And then you go to the B-class group, and there's all these B-class guys coming up that are badasses. And yeah. every weekend I was there, there were fights somewhere. We went literally every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, there was a fight every week somewhere. Belgium, somewhere in Holland, different cities. We went to fights every three times a weekend, every weekend. And then I thought... This doesn't exist at home. The structure doesn't exist. Let alone, forget having a team like this to train with or a coach like that, that over you. There's no structure. I was lucky in being from Kentucky to fight one time a year for a lot of the 90s. Yeah. And I remember one year I trained like the whole year looking forward to a fight. Duke Rufus was promoting some shows. Right. 
and when I got there, the fight got canceled. I was like, well, man, what the fight I had for that year? You know, and it was like there were no amateur tournaments yet. There was nothing. It was just a mess. And I was, it was, I had no clue what I was going to do. And I think, I think my logical side, my subconscious said, you're not going to be a world champion, you know, but maybe, maybe down the road, the guys that you train in the future could be a world champion. But you've got to develop that here. You've got to create that. So take that experience with you. Yeah. Every since yeah. then, I've gone back to Holland every single year. Oh, since okay. then, so and then made relationships that lasted forever. I mean, and then around '97, I started also working with Rob Kamen, and uh, so you know the the knowledge that I got from those guys was is massive. I mean, it's just I can't. I'll never be able to repay those guys. And it was. It, it made the entire the entire system that I have now is from all the stuff that I picked up from those guys. So the system that you're you're primarily known for is like a Dutch based sort of system as opposed to the Thai style. Yeah. Um, so what what would you say technically are the two the major differences between the two styles? Uh, the difference is a lot of people get pay too much attention to the differences in individual techniques because there's obviously some individual differences yeah. in the techniques. But that's not the big. It's one. It's going to be the way that we train. It's a little bit. It's uh, right. If you understand where Dutch kickboxing and Muay Thai came from, it came from that Holland was a powerhouse country in Kyokushin Kai karate, hard uh, knockdown karate, uh, what else called bare knuckle karate. So those guys were already used to competition fighting full contact. They don't wear shin guards. They didn't wear gloves. They punch and kick, knead the body. They clinched. Yeah, in Kyoshikin, though, there's no head strikes. You can punch to the face. Yeah. You can knee to the face, you can kick to the face. Oh, no punch. Okay. No punch to All the right. face. You can only punch the body. Um, but the way they trained was always full contact, and they they just beat the hell out of each other, and very physical, and right in front of each other. No footwork. Those guys, if you Google kill Christian guy and look at world championships, it's two dudes standing toe-to-toe just trying to kill each other. And that is where the Dutch style, when they went to kickboxing, they had, why the Dutch are so good at body punches is because they spent a lifetime mastering punching to the body from Kyokushinkai. The low kicks, same. So they just adapted that. But more importantly, what they did is they already had all these dojos that switched over and started doing kickboxing as well. So they had a format for teaching classroom structures that did not involve a Thai style camp with eight trainers holding pads for guys. So they had, uh, the Dutch system is like, really revolves around partner drills with contact. You know, heavy contact partner drills, lots of sparring, and then as we close in on fights, pad work. But it's not like, uh, you know, the American equivalent of a, when you see a lot of gyms in the States, they'll say, we have a Thai style camp. But then you go there and the students are holding Thai pads for each other when they do their training, which is not a Thai style camp at all because the fighters don't typically hold pads for each other. In a Thai style camp, there's eight trainers and they schedule out. It's your turn for the pads. When you're done, you go to the bag. He comes over to me. Yeah. And they're master, masters on the pads. And the fighters don't hold pads. So it's a little different when you've got a student that is also not very adept at holding pads. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, even, even different, you know, it's, there's a, definitely a technique to holding pads, yeah. you know, like, and all that sort of yeah, stuff. So and also just the uh, the kind of, like, um, you know, not not being a uh, just just a punching bag, like yeah. striking from the pad position and whatnot. Right. You know, right. So, so the Dutch never they just incorporated their style of classroom structure and made it into kickboxing and eventually Muay Thai. Um, the other big thing is is that like one of the things I always appreciated about expel like a guy like Rob Kamen. Rob Kamen was a fighter. He was a fighter's fighter. It's all about money. Um, so he would fight American rules kickboxing. He'd fight K1 style rules kickboxing. He'd fight full rules Muay Thai. It didn't matter. It wasn't like, oh, if it's not Muay Thai, I'm not fighting it. And that that's not a bad thing. But in today's market, it, it becomes more relevant. Like our guys, all of our fighters fight all the rules, with the exception of the above the waist stuff because nobody does that anymore. If it got really popular, we'd probably do it just to stay active. But we're from Kentucky where there are zero fights. You know, I've got an amateur who's been with me for four, he's been fighting for four years now, and he's got 30 fights in four years, fighting all over the country, he's fighting Italy, he's fighting Holland. Um, and the only way you can get that many fights is if you're willing to fight whatever rules someone presents to right, you. Right, yeah. We're fighting with elbows, this fight, great, next fight, no elbows, next fight, no clenching at all, whatever. We're going to do it. Which means you have to be pretty well-rounded. 
and I think that's that's the biggest difference uh, in the actual fights. The difference is, comes in the pacing. Um, there's a certain pace that's appreciated in Muay Thai. In Thai style, Muay Thai, yeah. yeah. And there's a faster pace that's appreciated in kickboxing. Right. We don't differentiate the two. So we go into all of our Muay Thai fights with the same pace. Straightforward, right. bang it out. Fast. Yeah. And what happens usually is most people that we've encountered, not all, but most, they have a lot of trouble with the pace. The pacing of it just, it's not what they're used to. It's just a lot. And all the things that everybody tells you about, uh, you can't have the boxing combinations because of the elbows, and you can't do this because of the body kicks, those are all true if you're fighting ties. But the problem is, is most of the foreigners, especially Americans that are doing Muay Thai, they're not really that good at Muay Thai. And so they might have the look of a traditional Thai stylist, but they don't kick like Jelson Glide. So those, those rules don't apply. They don't elbow like those guys. So I don't really have to worry about it because they're not good enough to stop the boxing. Um, they hopefully will evolve and develop at some point, but it's it hasn't for us yet been the case. We're for the most part better at what we do than they are at what they do. So it doesn't mean that the style is wrong. It's just the way that people are training and the focus the guys have at this point. So yeah, that's the biggest difference for me. So out of your uh, your pro career. Um you know, was there any, any particular moment where you came to where you're like, you know what, I, I think I want to go more into training? And well, it was really easy for me, actually, because there was, A, there was very few fights. I was managing myself. The worst thing you can ever do is manage yourself because then it's all ego-driven. You know, I wanted to, I, I so desperately wanted to play the game that at that time, in the late 90s, early 2000s, what I didn't understand is that for every event, there's, 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 two ways you can get on a show. You're either the guy that's being promoted or you're the guy that's there to fight the guy that's being promoted. Oh, right. Okay, I got you. Yeah. So I was getting lots of opportunities and I was like, man, they really appreciate me. They're really into this. You know, like they appreciate what I do. Win or lose, they appreciate what I do. And they realized that I had built up just enough of a name, mostly not from fighting, but from training so much internationally. He knows that guy. Okay, he, yeah. You know what I mean? <clears throat> And so I was getting lots of fights over my head. And uh, it was really good for me, though, because the next step past that was everything started coming together. So I really started right about the time that I started getting a grasp on my entire the style that I wanted to fight. Because the problem was I came back from Holland all those times, and there wasn't a, anybody here that trained like that. So I can make my own guys and train them, but they're, they're, they're years behind me still before we can do anything. So then as I reach out to find coaching, uh, you know, I trained for, for three years with Sakasem. He was in Indianapolis. And I would drive up there twice a week to train with him. That was definitely not the same style. So I had this confliction going on with the way I trained and the way I wanted to fight, the right. idea that I had. They didn't meld. So a lot of my early fights were all still Thai style fights. And I wasn't good at that, like the guys I was fighting with. Right. Or... If I try to fight too much Thai style with too much clinch, I was fighting guys that had amazing boxing, and they were lighting me up. So it was just this confliction of where I wanted to go and what I had available to me, how to put all that together. So by the time that I start to really get a grasp on that, I blow out a disc in my neck. Uh, bad, really bad. And uh, so in 2004, 10 years ago, I know this because I've got to I now, unfortunately, go back in. I go to the 30th this month. Oh right! I just okay. had an MRI. We got through the surgery again. Oh, so this is a, this is a bad injury then. It was right? really bad. Yeah. Okay. So they went. Uh, I had a disc. You know, you've heard of herniated discs. Yeah. I had a herniated disc that ruptured. So if you imagine the material inside of there, it's kind of like a gel. Ugh. Well, that gel ejected and dug into my spinal cord. So I, like this right arm got real skinny over the course of four months. I couldn't use it at all. When I finally got in to see the surgeon, he looked at my MRI. He's like, "I'll see you tomorrow." And I thought he was joking. He's like, if you want to use that arm again, I'll see you tomorrow. So then when the surgery was done, I woke up. As soon as I woke up, I had full use of my arm. Everything was good. And I asked him, I said, what do, you, what do you think? Could I fight again? And he was like, yeah, maybe. You may need this surgery again faster than if you oh, do wow. that. And I was kind of like, uh. Then you start weighing things out. There's not very many fights. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm done. I'm not going to, you know, I, I'd already come to the realization that, I'm never going to be a world champion. I'm never going to have 100 fights. Sure. This is what it is. 
So it was an easy transition. I already had a gym. You know, in order for me to have the fights I had, I had to create a team around me of people to dream with. They were still my students. It's the worst possible scenario you can have. So what I ended up with back then was 12 of the toughest dudes on the planet because they had to spar me. And I knew everything they were going to do. I showed them. So I beat the fuck out of them. And then they would show back up again. But I never had a successful gym because that's I was still fighting. Fighters kind of be, have to be a little bit selfish. So I had this group of people. So when we had new people come in, it was like, this is how we're going to train because I would fight. This is all it is. Get used to it. If you can't handle it, leave. And they did. So I had 12. You couldn't make a living doing it. So as soon as I wasn't a fighter anymore, I could step back and then look at it's not about me. It's about you guys. Yeah, it's about developing. And I could build a proper program at that point. So 2004, I decided no more fighting. I went into coaching full-time. And it's been a full-time gig ever since. I had gyms all the way back to 97. But they were all run around, I need to build a place for me to train for fights. Right. Everything. The fitness kickboxing I had in the 90s was only there to cash in on the Tybo craze so that I had money to have a facility and a place to train for my fights. And then 2004, it segued full-time into being about building a team and uh, yeah for me it's it, I, I'm a very competitive coach and because I don't I feel like I never got a chance to do the things I wanted to do so maybe I'm not going to get that chance but the fighters now I've already got people coming up that I've trained that have done f three times as many fights on more continents than I ever did and just amazing things so yeah I'm happy with it was that injury the same one that Boss Rutten had? Because I remember Boss Rutten had some sort of horrible... Everybody uh, has it. Rob Kerr had the same yeah, one. Yeah, his arm. He was yeah. like, had no use and yeah. he was like withered away. It's a mess, man. It's yeah. a mess. It really is a mess. So I got the MRI back last week and now I've got... They're not as bad as the first one, but I have two of them now. I didn't have two before. Ugh. So I go in on the 30th. We'll discuss it with the surgeon. Hopefully he can... You know what they, they typically will do is fuse vertebrae together because... He, you know, it's funny. When I started having this problem again about five months ago, the first thing that instantly popped in my brain was I was so elated that it, I could use my arm again at sure. that time that I, I didn't hear anything else the doctor told me. I heard it, but I didn't listen. And what he told me, and it didn't really come back to me until this is, he said, now you may need this surgery again in the future. Typically, they'll do with fusions where they fuse the vertebrae together. The reason they'll do that is because when they cut portions of that disc out, if you imagine you have a skyscraper and you take half of one floor out of the middle, now you have some structural integrity issues. Yeah, definitely. Right? So now I've got only half a disc in one of those. So it's going to eventually collapse. Oh, wow. And when one collapses, then the one above it or below it, and it's a yeah, chain it reaction. Starts, yeah, it's all Yeah, so he didn't think at the time I needed the fusion. I don't think he also knew that this is what I'm just going to do for the rest of my life. Uh, so... It could be they need to do some fusions this time. I'm okay with whatever they want to do. It's so uncomfortable. If they just fix it, I'll be happy. But in six weeks, I'll be able to do everything normal again. I'm still doing all my pad training, everything. Still doing all my teaching. It's just miserable. So once they fix it, everything will be the same for me. I just The big thing is I just I can't do heavy sparring anymore. I can't do heavy clinch work anymore. Right. I yeah. miss that. I really... Yeah, I imagine when you posture up, you try... You I, just, like, I, can't, yeah. I can't get hit in the head. I can't even look up Ugh. because wow. it's like a sharp... So that sucks because at the beginning of this year, I kind of was like thinking, okay, maybe, and it could be why I got back to this, but I got a little bit rowdy and I was like, I'm going to get back. I want to get back to sparring with the guys. I miss it way too much. Instead of just the pad work and all the training and the drills, I want to get back to sparring. So I started doing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and then now I'm here. So we'll see. Maybe they infuse them all. And I'll be a robot. <laughs> they have no flexibility <laughs> in your spine at all. You know, just, if they, if they can hit away, then it hurt me. Yeah. So we'll see. But, but so you got you got this facility here. You got this fight team. Um, how many guys you got on the team right now? It's a small group. We have uh, it ebbs and flows, but right now it's serious because we run like for me when the way I approach a fight team is there's two types of people that are going to compete. There's recreational. And then there's people that are trying to do something with a career. After you have five fights, I mean, if you're recreational, after five fights, you're done. Because the people that go past that point are doing something more than you're doing. The mindset's different. What do I mean by recreational? Uh, I've had people in the past that were in their mid to late 30s that really wanted to do some fights. So they train just like everybody else, but you're not going to pursue a career that late in life. So there's, there's zero point in putting yourself through all of that. So our guys, they train seven days a week 
and you know how are you going to have time for that yeah it's got to be what you're all about you are getting ready to go to college you want to have a fight recreational so we'll have those guys they come and go um they have to train just like everybody else. If someone comes in and says, I want to fight, I say, this is the schedule that you need to do. If your life permits this, this we can do it. If your life doesn't permit this, this isn't the sport for you. Um, the reason I make them train exactly the same and expect the same is because blunt force trauma to your brain doesn't differentiate between if you're doing this for fun or you're doing this for the career for the rest of your life. Yeah. And a brain injury for somebody that wanted a bucket list of fight is the craziest thing in the world nobody fathoms that that's a possibility it's very rarely talked about it is a big possibility in all various degrees so what I tell people if you want to train like a professional with the professionals you can have recreational fights you can get up to about five of those and you got to make a decision what you're trying to do and uh, so serious fighters that we have on the team right now we have my wife she has about 40 fights she's fought all over the world she's fought Four, four times in Holland she fought twice in Suriname Spain Germany France China twice uh, Slovenia Russia Maybe, I, think, yeah. I think that's it I might be missing a couple in there and then all over the USA so sure. uh, we have uh, Adam Edgerton he's rolling up on 30 fights now and I mentioned him earlier he's fought in Holland on a big show he's fought in Italy he's fought all over the USA and all the all the amateur outlets. Uh, we got a new kid coming up, uh, Jordan Satterley. He's brand new. He's got like three fights. He's he's probably at this stage the most talented of all of them, but he's still the youngest. And then we've got a really good guy named Aaron Lambauer, and Aaron's actually fighting in uh, Toronto next weekend oh, okay. for a North American title. So we've got some really really talented. I mean, you add them all up, there's. Those four fighters have well over 100 fights between them, just four guys. Um, the way we look at it, if you're not just doing this recreationally, then I tell it, I want everybody to do this. There's a window, you know, so let's let's get in and get out. So then you can move on with your life or do whatever you're going to do or segue to coaching or whatever. So once they start, we try to fight. We have a regular schedule. We have, you know, there's amateur tournaments that we hit all of them through the year. There's usually one international tournament that we hit, and then there's the regular circuit of regular fights that we always go to. So these guys are fighting around 12 times a year. And a lot of fighting. None yeah. of them are in Kentucky. Yeah, I was going to say that you have to be on the road right. constantly. Yeah. So we're always the away team. So yeah. I really I prefer that. I like to travel. I like to see what's going on everywhere else. So um, so that, that makes it difficult for a lot of people because right away the travel time just in and of itself too right. you know if you have like some sort of you know, family or jobs or whatever you gotta like get the away the thing from that them. we have found now is that it's, it's it's still tough to get used to but we're, this has become like a destination for a lot of people to come and do a camp here so oh, so they'll still come yeah. in for like you know like eight weeks or whatever eight weeks and down so we get all variations of that so um, and that's nice because it exposes our guys to some pretty decent fighters from other places they are a lot of times better than some of the pros that are coming in so it's good for the pros to come in because they have higher sparring than what they had at their place um, and then now we're starting slowly to get people that are actually moving here we just had a kid move here from Cleveland oh, so awesome. you know to transplant he's going to become part of the team start his career moving forward and we've got a few other people that are on the fence talking about moving here so that's, that's interesting I, I think that because we've been in this market for so long I think that there's always going to be the new kid that's going to find out about the sport tomorrow that wants to sign up and could be a star. But of the active people in this town, none of them are on the fence about coming over here. They're, this is mostly an MMA city. It's a really low-level MMA city. So most of the guys that train fight on local events that are really just garbage. So yeah, You were saying earlier when we were hanging out that, that you initially were trying to have a, a sort of MMA connection. Yeah. But that just didn't well, I mean, when, when I first got back into... I closed my first big gym, real gym, I should say, in 2001. And it was a weird, it was a really weird time in 2001 because Ultimate Fighter hadn't hit yet. The UFC was around, but only the hardcore fans really knew what it was. Yeah, it, did, it was still more yeah. like this like so blood sport. I trip. opened a gym in 97, 
and I just got back from Thailand and it did it did well. We had an initial little push. I was terrible at running a gym because my idea was this is I, it was you know like in Holland they're just tougher people. I mean everything they do is you know if you on your first day in Holland if you got kicked in the leg you'd be like damn that's cool I want to learn to do that that really hurt. And if that happens in America, they say, are you fucking crazy? What are you doing? You're an asshole. You're a jerk. <laughs> this is stupid. This is not safe. I'm leaving. You know, it's not the same mentality. And I was very much, when I went to Holland, of course, I was training with fighters and I was trying to be a fighter. But they would say, let me, if I had a question, why don't you do this? Well, let me show you why you don't do that. And they would show me, which usually ended up with me holding my liver on the floor wanting to cry or yeah. my leg was folded in half from a big kick and then I would say okay that makes sense and that was very much my idea when I got back I couldn't wait to create these epiphanies and all these martial arts guys that were coming in you know like well why wouldn't you do this well let me show you why you would do that let's do it for real and then you're gonna know instead of this my whole kung fu career was all based around well if this happens then you could do this and that was it it was just a conversation it was just a practical in theory, yeah. in theory you do this can't really do that if you never do it. And so I came back and it was it was awful for business. It didn't it made, like I said earlier. It made twelve badass dudes. The ones that stayed were badasses, but everybody else was like, ah, this is crazy. I'm not going to do this. So I ran that gym until about two thousand one, and you know it, we did well ninety seven. We did well ninety eight. We did well ninety nine. Kind of we were starting just to break even. And, you know, 2000 was kind of breaking even. 2001 was starting to look like we weren't going to break even. And I said, all right, it's time to shut this down, put everything in storage. And then I took the, I took the hardcore group that I had. We went to, like, a, a fitness center, leased out some space there. And we were, we were fighting at the time, so we continued to do our thing. I didn't worry about the general public at that time. And then it was uh, a little bit later that this guy approached me and said, hey, I'm going to open this mega center with self-defense and jiu-jitsu and we want to have like a kickboxing and Muay Thai program there and I thought uh, you know maybe maybe I was actually considering moving to Vegas at the time and uh, one of my really good friends who has since passed away named John McPhail he was really uh, he was really big in the scene on the west coast and I was having a conversation I was like I'm thinking about moving to Vegas I was kind of managing some fighters then and most of them were located in Vegas and I was thinking I'm going to go out there and start over and he's like ah man that's a it's a, it's a tough market to crack. So many people already have a foothold there. Yeah. It's a cesspool. And he, was, and he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, you know, sometimes your field of diamonds is in your own backyard. And, and I, okay, okay, okay. And I'm hung up. And then every day that, that kept popping in my brain, your field of diamonds is in your own backyard. And I thought, maybe I'll, maybe I'll talk to this guy and see what he's got. You know, and I went over and he built this amazing facility. It was really nice. I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm let's start it, you know. And for the first time, and this was 2004. I think the first episode of the Ultimate Fighter was maybe 05, something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we were just getting rolling, and then 05 rolls around. Ultimate Fighter comes on, and poof! Overnight, I've got 40, 50 people in a class, and it just blew up. Yeah, just some force gripping, and uh, it blew up. It just <laughs> blew up like crazy. And then I realized, okay, this is this was the right market for me to stay in for now. And then we. We ran that thing. That that relationship ran its course. They had a different agenda than what we were trying to do. It just never works out. Those super centers like that, they never work out because those aren't... All the people involved don't have the same dream. Maybe the guy that built it had a dream, but he's going to have a whole bunch of people that have to run programs that their dream is to also have their own gym someday. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so yeah. they're always going to leave. So yeah. it came time for us to leave, and we... In 09, we started over again with the gym. I went to the storage unit that I had all my stuff in, got it all out, ordered new stuff, built a better version of the first gym that I had. Four years later, we found this spot over here. Built a better version of that gym here. And, uh, yeah, so now that's where we're at. So now uh, you're, you're involved with Glory. Yeah, so... Think how that all come about. So it was it, it was pretty easy, really, because um, Core Hammers is kind of like the, the figurehead of the organization. He's the, the main guy for talent operations. Um maybe like three years ago now so three years ago um, I'd already been uh, Core had become so involved with the heavyweights and K1 that they were probably out of the country more than they were in the country so Ramon and I have been keeping up Ramon had been over here we did some seminars all across the country over here 
Um, every time I go to Holland and stuff, I didn't see him. But most of the activity that I had for my fighters it wasn't through them in Holland. It was through other promoters, other events, other gyms. So we were. I was taking fighters to uh, fight in Holland. I was going over there. We were going over to train. And uh, but regardless, we always were in touch with those guys. So maybe three years ago, I guess Core contacted me and said, "Listen, um, we're going to try to buy K1." And I was like, "Who's we? What are you talking about?" And he's like, "Well, we've got some investors. K1's flopping. We're going to see if we can't buy it." And I was like, "Okay." And what do you, you know? He's like, "We want Americans put together people for us. You know, start start giving us a list." And initially, initially with that list, he said, well, initially, before they had a company, he said, good, good advice would be make a management company, sign some guys, send them our way. So I did that. I already had a management company. So I said, oh, I've already got guys that I managed, but they weren't the right people. You know? So I reached out to some people and said, listen, don't sign anything long term. Be patient. I can bring this to your door if you're interested. You know? So I signed some guys that I could represent. And then uh, we started putting all that together and then the whole deal with K1 fell through. And uh, at that point in time, you've heard of Golden Glory. Yeah, the, of course. So they had Golden Glory as a management company and a training company. There were gyms, Golden Glory gyms across Holland. They were all part of the team. It was really just made up of the fighters they managed. They started managing international guys. They had MMA fighters. They had big time kickboxing. Um, they had already segued into doing their own events. They were called United Glory events. They were doing them in Russia. Um, you know, they bought in Bosch Root and came over and did some comp- did the uh, ring announcement. Yeah, going up. Exactly. Some of those ended up on Access TV. Yeah. Back then, it wasn't Access. It was uh, it was uh, HDNet. Oh yeah, HDNet. Right. Yeah, another random right. sort of like right. It was <laughs> HDNet back then. So. Uh, when they couldn't get K1, the guys, the investors that were on board was like, well, what are we going to do? What can we do? We've already started down this road. Let's just screw it. We don't need K1. Let's just make a kickboxing company. Yeah, build it. And uh, so the, what are we going to call it? And it was like, all right, let's call it Glory. We already have that name is kind of known. Yeah, from Golden Glory. They're like, yeah. screw it. We'll take it. They took the name. So the investors, they bought out Golden Glory. They bought out United Glory, the promotion. And they hired all the the people that ran those to work for them. And that's where the core and all of them came in. So once they did, they kind of segued over to Glory, um, it was kind of a weird time because K1 started looking to come back to the States and do some stuff. Maybe you remember they did some West Coast tryouts and yep. stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. And some, there were so many different people with K1 that nobody knew who was in charge. But one of these guys reached out to me and said, hey, we want to do something in New York. Like I ended your special could we hire you to help us with matchmaking? And I was kind of like, uh, what, what are we talking about? You know, and they came back and it was re- really like, I would be retarded to say no. Yeah, totally. If they were going to come through with it. You know? yeah. So I went back to core and I was like, listen, I'm kind of in an odd spot because K1 just contacted me and they want to hire me to do some matchmaking for them over here. And core said, oh, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. And I was like, okay. He's like, okay. you're going to work for us. And I was like, okay. And he said, let me call you back. And he calls me back. He goes, listen, reach out to Pierre Andoran. Send him a message. He knows you're going to call him. So I sent Pierre a message. Actually, on Twitter. I didn't know how to get it. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be like, well, give me a Z. I, like, <laughs> I, like, he assumed I had it, so I'm going to pretend I did. So I found him on Twitter. <laughs> What's the best way to contact you? He gave me his email. I sent him an email. He called me. And he's like, Cor's already talked to me about you. Like, we want to offer you a, you know, a contract to work for us, you know, exclusive. We have big plans for America. And that's how, that's how it all started. And then uh, we started kind of, you know, I just started segueing the company as it grew. We started, it started breaking into divisions. So uh, our division now is talent operations. So Core Hammer is obviously the head of talent operations. And then there's three other as a, of us that work in that. So we do all the fighter acquisition. We do all the matchmaking. So my job was pretty much North America, like especially the United States. So when they did Road to Glory, there was... Uh, a series of five tournaments that we did. We did them in New York, and we did them in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, two yep. of them, one in L.A. Um, we worked with local promoters on those, and it was eight guys from the U.S. in each of those weight classes that we could 
find a, a champion of a tournament to have our initial talent. And uh, so I match made all those tournaments, worked with all the details out for those things. And uh, then after we launched and everything was rolling, now I just I'm kind of responsible for all the North American stuff. So finding talent, signing talent, booking talent, that kind of stuff. So that's my my job, which is amazing for me because, you know, every other day I have a Skype call with Core Hemmers and we talk about the biggest plans and, the, you know, it's the highest level right yeah. now. So it's, it's, uh, it's amazing to have input and that, to be a part of that. Now, after all these years, you know, like really wanting it, you know, to, to succeed in the States. And I really feel like The formula I've watched, I've worked for every promotion in this country, either as a fighter or taking a coach to it or helping with, assisting with matchmaking or I did journalism for the sport. I mean, every, every hat that I had to put on to keep things going, I've worn over the years. So I, I really think I know all the mistakes that everybody's going to make. And yeah, along the way, Glory's making some of them as well. But, you know, like we were speaking earlier, it's really tough to say because we threw so much at the wall at once to get it to where it is and now it's kind of stagnated and we've got to really batten down the hatches for a longer ride yeah um, but had we not thrown all that at the wall we probably would have never been on a major network at prime time live yeah that's that's a big so you gotta you know it's really yeah. you don't know you know I mean yeah but the one thing that is clear is that it's gonna take a lot longer to introduce the sport to the USA and I think for the, the bigger problem, the bigger problem that kickboxing has, other than it not being a main sport in this country, is, uh, and it's one thing that a lot of people aren't really talking about. I think I'm really the only one that I've ran into is is fatigue. So you've got this MMA fatigue going on right now. There's been so much MMA. Yeah, you're so tour, a lot of for US, so many companies. Just like UFC has something going on every week. You know, I, I've never been a giant hardcore MMA fan but I followed it because it was what I did you know it's like this is in my industry so there was a period in the uh, you know the, the 2007 8, 9 10 I watched all the pay-per-views I watched all of them somewhere bought them a yeah. lot of times I don't watch any of it anymore it's just too much there's so much there's has, a lot it has to be something really special I cannot tell you how many times I'm at home after the gym and I, I was like, there's UFC's on tonight? And there's fights. It's like a Tuesday night or something. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. I can't even keep up with it all. And then I'll watch it and be like, I, I've heard these names, but I've never seen this guy yeah. in life. And they have those like, weird international fights. It's just too much to keep up with. And I think that yeah. a lot of fans are in the same boat. And I think I think there's just... And you're seeing it even in the UFC numbers. The pay-per-view numbers are dropping. The overall, when they went to Fox, the numbers are dropping on the viewership. The saturation. It's just, yeah, it's just yeah. fatigue. You know, it's so... But you know, every business has a bell curve. So if you look at the UFC, you know it took them 15 years to get to be the big powerhouse. So they're starting to dip. Maybe maybe it's just for now. I think it's probably it's heading that way indefinitely. But it's probably going to take 15 years to get back to the bottom. But the bottom isn't zero. The bottom is back where the the hardcore fans were. Yeah, exactly. So it will never go away, but yeah. it's going to regulate itself and it'll be back down. Yeah, it'll be a little bit more marginal than it was. So the problem for a Glory is you bring a new group of athletes, new rules, new everything into a market, and you're telling people that are completely exhausted from trying to keep up with fighting to, hey, budget this into your time schedule, learn who these guys are, learn these rules, and it's just difficult to do. So I think if we can hold on for two or three more years I think that that fatigue starts to swing back the other way and as as people get over being tired and they start to tune back in they're likely to be intrigued by something that's a little bit new and fresh than the same old octagon with Bruce Buffer and everyone is so redundant yeah I true. feel like I've seen every time I watch the UFC I end up talking to everybody in the room oh because I feel like I've seen it all already there's only occasionally that something spectacular happens something crazy that you've never seen well, one of the things that's good about Glory is you can actually see like real striking too. I mean, right. a lot of the, as much as I love MMA, right. and I'm a huge fan of all that stuff. Um, you know, it's very rare that you see the level of striking that you would in like Glory. Yeah, or, absolutely. And the, you know. the thing is, like, for your, you know, if we're averaging around five hundred thousand viewers, um, that's probably the hardcore fan base that are watching both, right? So sure. one of the things that we've seen, 
just you know like all the events that I'm at all the glory events so it's it's usually not the case but when I get back all of our people will get together and all watch them together and a lot of those guys that came here they came here because they were huge MMA fans yeah and the one thing they say is like I just can't get over the pace it's crazy these guys are going and going and going and going and they're non-stop and they're not you know with MMA striking you've got a, a massive distance between the two guys yep. you know, there's eight feet between them mm-hmm. and what I call it like shadow dance fighting because they they're doing a lot and they're throwing stuff yep. at each other and they occasionally work their way close enough to hit each other and then it's back out eight and feet very rarely they throw combos it's crazy and they're so, they're so worried about the takedown or getting hit by the small glove that they keep the the distance and yeah. they have five minutes of that so you start if you don't know if you don't have anything to compare it to you have no reference point so I think a lot of people were watching that and they're excited with it before, but now when you watch Glory, you see that and you look back at that, and the more you keep seeing the difference, you say, "Man, it's boring. It's kind of boring, really." Yeah, some fighters are right. Definitely. It's a whole lot of nothing, yeah. and then something cool happens. But yeah. the bulk of it is a lot of nothing. So you end up with a five minute round's a long time to watch if the guys aren't going to fight. Yeah, and then there are definitely some guys. Who, it's, I think it's a little easier to stall. In, yeah, uh, in MMA because there's sure. that. It's almost. I think it's almost a necessity to stall. In yeah, MMA because of, really, I I don't want them to do it now because I don't want more competition. But what I said years ago, the best thing that could happen for MMA would be to reduce it to three minute rounds because the whole idea of having a five minute round anyway was give the guys more time to work for submissions. That's not what happens now. Nobody's taking all that time because if you don't get the, if you're not transitioning pretty quick somewhere fast, you get stood up. Yeah, that's true. So it's not like you have an indefinite amount of... You don't get five minutes on the ground to work for a submission. No. So the logic of having that extra time is irrelevant anymore. So why not reduce it to a three-minute? That's two extra minutes of energy they can put into fighting hard for three minutes. It's a round that everybody's used to. Boxing is only three Three minutes. Three minutes, yeah. Glory is only three minutes. There's never been a point where somebody's looking at those and being like, why aren't these two minutes long? They don't feel like three-minute rounds when I watch Glory because there's a lot of action. You know, that's right. That's they're right. going for broke so, the whole time. So yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. The um, that's that's one of my my, my big criticisms of MMA in general is just the, the stalling aspects of it. Uh, have you ever seen any of the? Uh, I don't know if you're into grappling at all, but there's uh, there's some submission only stuff going on right yeah, now. I don't typically watch it now. Yeah. I'll see the I'll, everybody will share the highlights after those. Yeah, the highlights are good. Yeah, and I'll of course watch those because it's 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 really impressive to watch those things. But it's not. It's just not my cup of tea. Yeah, I don't, I understood. Yeah. Yeah, but I like that. That's another sort of situation in the grappling world where, you know, a lot of times if it's for, for points, you know, people know they have the advantage in their head and they'll stall. But if it's a submission-only thing with no points, then you go to draw unless someone yeah. gets submitted. Yeah. You know, and that makes it for a very, very interesting match. Yeah. You know, the one question I have uh, about another thing about Glory is uh, the idea of the tournament. Do you think that's something they're going to continue doing forward? Yeah, they're, they're, like the tournament, the original format, obviously... You know, it, it carries over. K1 created the concept for yeah. the eight-man tournaments, and it, it proved really popular for a really long time. And it, it's awesome. I love it. I love it. So, um, you know, initially when Glory started before they came to the USA, there was uh, not only an idea for an eight-man tournament, but they actually completed one of them, a 16-man tournament. It's called a Grand Slam. And it was, it was a little bit, you know, the rules hadn't quite been worked out yet, but in order to make it, not lethal to the guys because that's a lot of fighting. That's 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 what I was getting to. Is that fighting? They made the first fight two minute rounds. Yeah, they made okay. it that if you were winning two rounds up, there was no third. It just you advanced. You know what I mean? So yeah. then the other rounds became more normal rounds. So they were just trying to. The first round was almost like let's just run out here and get up two rounds and be done with it. Um, it made for a really long night of programming too. That's a long long time. So. But it was really compelling because nobody had ever done anything like that before. So the idea originally was, come to the States, we're going to have this format of eight-man tournaments and 16-man tournaments. And maybe the 16-man tournaments would be something like every two years. You know, something special, pay-per-view, New Year's Eve, something like that. Uh, problem is, when you come to the USA, you have regulations that don't allow that in almost every state there is. Really? Yeah. Okay. We actually found a lot of the things that Glory was using internationally they couldn't do here. So one of the things Glory has originally had was five judges instead of three. Okay. Um, they had uh, some different knockdown rules. You know, so uh, when you go into each state, 
you have to follow their athletic commission rules. Well, there's no athletic commission that's going to allow five judges because it's not in the books. It's not legally. You'd have to change the law first and yeah. do that as a process. You need a lawyer to go into that state. And, that could be years probably. There was no time stuff. for us to yeah. And there was no way to logically tell them, like, this is better to do it this way. So we, we adapted that. We adapted to some states have a, you know, uh, no, there's standing A count. There's no standing A count. Right, yeah. That's some states have that. Some do have it. So you've got to, like, uh, that affects your, your, your rules as well. So we have to modify that a little bit. Um, and then along came Spike. So before we had Spike, we were on CBS Sports. I don't know if you ever caught any of those. I didn't catch any of those. Yeah, with CBS ones. Sports, they were a little bit more lenient. With the, that's a it's it's not a established network, so to say. It's only sports. It's it's a you have to pay for a package that you get. Right. So they let us pretty much do whatever the format was on there. Eight man tournament, sixteen man tournament. We don't care to do it. Um, but once we went to Spike, Spike was like, "Look, you have a two hour window, and we have commercials." Now you deduct all that commercial time from your two-hour window. You don't have two hours. You don't even. You barely have half of that. So now, how are you going to fit in an eight-man tournament even in the two-hour period? It's impossible. Yeah. So we said, okay, what about a four-man tournament? And then Spike was like, love it. So we did it, and we started those four-man tournaments. And um, you know, like it, it, the impression we get from Spike is that. The four-man tournament is something that they like because they think the fans like. So the four-man, oh, I'm so hungry. The four-man tournaments are not going to go away. They're going to stay. But what we've had to do as a restructuring project to batten down the hatches for the long haul is we can't keep having two hundred and fifty thousand dollar tournaments with the you know those big big checks were always the top four guys in yeah. the division who would of course be the highest paid guys. And we used to have a structure where you could win the belt either in a single fight, five-round fight, or in one of those championship tournaments against the other top four guys. So it was just crazy expensive to do, like in a light heavyweight division, we did a show in Istanbul uh, where Spawn broke the leg. Yeah, In that tournament, you have Kokonsaki, Tyrone Spawn, Nathan uh, Carnage, and then one of the Brazilian guys. And but, oh yeah, the Anderson, the other Anderson Silva. It wasn't Anderson Silva because yeah. he's a heavyweight. These, oh, right, these okay. were light heavyweights. It was uh, maybe maybe who was it? Maybe Pereira. I don't remember exactly. Oh right, because uh, Gokansaki dropped down to the light heavyweight right. division right. in that fight. Okay. But it was the four top guys in the right. division who are obviously going to be the most expensive. And then on top of that, they win two hundred and fifty, and then the winner, the second place, gets another giant check, less than that. It's, it's just massively expensive. So what we did is we restructured again and said, the only way to win the belt is in a five-round title fight. But we'll still keep the tournament format. We'll do contender tournaments. Oh, okay. Which would be guys that aren't necessarily in the top five. And these contenders then are battling for a chance at the champion. So that allows us to have on every event a title fight or a main fight. doesn't have to be a title fight, but right now title fight and a four-man tournament. For so, for instance, yeah. yeah, for instance, the, the show coming up in Oklahoma City, um, we'll have a world title fight between uh, Robin Van Roosmalen and David Kiria, and then it'll have a four-man light heavyweight tournament, and it's guys that are up-and-comers, you know, that are, that are trying to battle their way back into contention for the title, and then you get the best... Yeah, it's a good, it's a good solid evening, right. really, right. of, of fights. Yeah. And, and so... Yeah, that's it. The, the tournament format's going to stay, but it's just going to be four-man tournaments. There could be in the future. I mean, obviously, we just did the pay-per-view was an eight-man tournament. Yeah. In middleweight. But you have a more freedom with time and whatnot. Pay-per-view, yeah. do whatever you want. You just yeah. got to have you got to have the viewership to support it. And right. We didn't have that yet. It was a little bit soon. So I think the pay-per-view model won't go away completely. I think it'll be down the road a little bit more. But you're starting to see now, I think that, I think over the next probably 10 years for sure, and that's long that's probably giving it too much time. Pay-per-views is going to be in. done. Yeah, I mean, that's just not the way things are It's an antiquated model. Yeah, People it's antiquated. It. Yeah. it doesn't work so well when you want to do a lot of events. Yeah. So, especially now when there's, the idea looks to be like it's going to go more and more to uh, content channels, you know, like... Exactly, like Netflix right. has and Hulu and all right. that, you know, so iTunes. The UFC has got Fight Pass. Yeah, Fight Pass, yeah. You know, I think their idea is eventually to segue. It, it turned out to be a big flop, but WWE 
they made their own network. Do you remember that? Their I do remember that, yeah. didn't work out yet, but yeah. the idea was the we have our own network with our own programming. You buy this network and you get all the programming. And that's I think that would be the future of it all because it's so easy now to have your own digital network. You can take it with you, too, if you have like an iPad or whatever. <clears throat> you're traveling, you got it with you. Right. You know? So we'll see. We'll see. But, uh, you know, we have another for after this year, we have... Uh, a deal already worked out with Spike to do another entire year of programming. So Spike is really excited about the project. That's that's a really positive thing. We we would obviously like for there to be more numbers, but I think when you look at the amount of time that we've been on Spike, if you compare it with other other similar uh, products like Bellator, yeah, for instance, Bellator now is averaging anywhere from six hundred to seven hundred thousand viewers, and that's after how many years of being on Spike. They're on they're on Spike ever since UFC left for Fox. So I don't know. That's four that's years. Like, yeah, like four or five years, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So it took them all, all the way to now to get pretty much where we're starting. Now a lot of that we start there because of them, because they already have a that's their hardcore fan base. Oh yeah, you just sort they're going to also tune into us exactly. as well. Yep. They're used to watching Spike, um, but that, to capture that solid number this early in the game is good. So now what what happens in three years? Maybe we have 800,000 or 900,000 or a million viewers, you know, and then we start to talk. And then it becomes a matter of support programming, which we're already, I think on the 25th of this month, there's going to be a, uh, a Best of Glory. It's KO show. Uh, and they, we've got deals in place to do all those kind of things, like lots of little, you know, extras to support it. Uh, for every event that we do, we actually do two events on one night. So I don't know if you've ever, have you been to any of the Glories in New York? I haven't been to any of them, no. So the first event that we'll do is called a Glory Super Fight Series, and it's it's packaged like an independent event. Um, then there's a 30 minute break, and then the live portion of Spike starts. So on Spike, you never hear about the Glory Super Fight Series because you don't want people saying, "Well, why aren't we seeing those fights?" Yeah. The idea originally was that we could on one night for one cost for renting a hall for having all your officials there, keep your overhead down, and create multiple uh, programming. And the idea would be great if, like, let's say we have a live spike event two weeks later, the Glory Super Right Series, which was technically that same night, aired. Then you have programming. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Just spacing it. Right. Um, It didn't happen. So we were selling it. uh, I think think maybe, maybe... CBS Sports and there's some some talk about that maybe some other networks are, are interested in picking up the Super Fight series but once that happens then that's more revenue for Glory it's more exposure those are all great fights they're really big fights instead of having tournaments on that it's all it's five single fights but it's uh, like in a, like a normal fight card right inexperience more experience more experience main event main event yeah right and they're amazing fights amazing amazing fights because it's a whole card but we sell those throughout Europe so Europe's watching those fights on their on their networks we just don't have it on a regular basis over here yet so that's the next step so the programming's there it's just a matter of convincing the fans that yeah it's, I'm, 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 I'm trying to promote kickboxing in the United States as much as possible yeah. it's a great sport you know and I love it more way more than boxing yeah. you know at this stage of the game I'm even probably a bigger I mean there's I definitely watch more MMA because there's more of it out there mm-hmm. but you know if there was more kickboxing I'd definitely watch it yeah yeah. so uh, so they got a lot of stuff going on so yeah. uh, how, how can people uh, you know do you have a Twitter Twitter handle and all that yeah stuff? you know I'm, I'm really lame at Twitter though it never it never made sense to me um, I I use my name for everything, so I'm at Eric Haycraft okay. on everything, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, you know, so it's super easy to find. Uh, we do a lot with Facebook. We do a lot with uh, Instagram. Okay. Um, I'll, have to, I'll have to follow you on Instagram. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. And then the gym, it's if, uh, if any of you guys are located in the Louisville area, uh, what's the website for the gym? Or? Realfightersgym.com. Okay, great. Yeah, super easy. Yeah, good. You know, a very applicable <laughs> name. You know. All right, Eric. Thanks a lot. I appreciate Thank taking you. your taking your morning out to, to talk with me. Yeah, I appreciate right. it. Thanks a lot. <gasps> Thank you
Yeah, yeah, oh!